Good evening, everyone watching at home online. Nice to have you with us. Just finished up some some uh, prayer and uh, fellowship time here as a church. Uh, we're going to jump right into our sermon, which is the sixth part in this series, if you can believe it. Been doing this series for six weeks. You might be thinking it feels about more like six months, but uh, we're getting into some really good stuff now. And tonight we're covering agreement number three. I'm going to do my best to stick pretty well to the notes. I want to read for you the agreement before we get too far into it because I didn't do it in the first part of the sermon last week, and then you guys left without knowing what it was. Last week we talked about misinformation. Week before that was being made in the image of God. This week, the agreement is, because I am susceptible to misinformation, I will rise above the temptation to judge and condemn those who think differently than I do. As someone made in the image of God to be his representation on earth, endowed with the authority of God to define creation, I will not use my image-shaping authority for my own purposes. All right, so because I'm susceptible to misinformation like we talked about last week, I will rise above the temptation to judge and condemn those who think differently than I do. As someone made in God's image to be his representation on earth, endowed with the authority of God to define creation, I will not use my image-shaping authority for my own purposes. And I hope to break that down as we get through the content this evening. So what's the deal with having to fill out a survey every time we have an interaction with any kind of customer service experience? Has anyone noticed like every experience now you have to fill out a survey or they're trying to get you to fill out a survey? I was at Safeway yesterday buying the potatoes for for tonight's meal And up popped on the little debit card screen a survey when I finished up everything. Safeway wants me to fill out a survey when I buy groceries. I was was so frustrated by the experience, I almost picked up the pen to answer never to the question, how likely are you to recommend Safeway to someone else? Never, because of this survey. And why is it that it's the experiences that we're most likely to have the worst experience that end up giving us the customer surveys, right? It's like the tech service, like the tech support help. You get the customer surveys after tech support. You never get offered a survey after a great experience, right? Like you never get offered a survey after you've watched the best movie of your life. You never get a notification on your phone after viewing the most beautiful sunset or a beautiful waterfall that says, ding, how would you rate your scenic experiences? Would you tell a friend? Instead, we get these kinds of things, like this that happened to me this week. The doctor's office that I went to sent me a survey after my visit, after my last appointment. An appointment at which they made me show up 15 minutes early for, and then they were 15 minutes late calling me back to the doctor's office, 
And then they made me sit for 15 minutes before the nurse came in, another 15 minutes before the doctor came in, and another 15 minutes before they came back in with my papers to let me go. When they checked me in, they made me sign a paper that says that I I realize that um, if I don't show up 15 minutes early, if I show up if I show up late to a certain number of appointments, that they can choose to kick me out of their practice. So I have to be there early. I cannot be late. If, I, if I'm late, I get a strike against me. If I get too many strikes, they kick me out. But they can be an hour, 15 minutes late on the appointment. Do they really want me filling out a survey after that experience? I felt like my health care was being threatened even though I showed up early. At an appointment that should have taken 10 minutes, took over an hour, and you didn't really solve the problem that I came in here with. I rate this experience a one out of five stethoscopes. So it's like this competition that's going on in our world today. Everyone's in competition with the other companies. It's kind of like that crazy ex that you got back together with, but you shouldn't have. Right? You shouldn't have gotten back together. That's kind of how the companies are treating you. It's like you stopped shopping here for a long time, but then you came back. And now we're worried we're going to do something to make you leave us again. We know you went shopping at Walmart during the pandemic because they offered free curbside pickup and we didn't. And now that you're back, I'm really worried they're going to try to steal you away again. We saw you check Walmart's prices on your phone while you were in our store. Yeah, you might be able to save a buck on a bag of chips for shopping there, but you know they'll never be able to give you the same customer service experience that we can. So, do you love us or not anymore? Check yes or no. So you check, you check the option because you're a little worried what will happen if you are honest with them. You say yes. And instantly you get 30 emails and text alerts saying, we love you, we love you, we love you. But then you don't respond to any of them, so they start getting a little panicky. Why haven't you responded yet? It's Target this time, isn't it? We always knew you liked red. Now they have that big red logo outside their building. They're just teasing you. You know that, right? They can never give you what you want. It's kind of what it feels like with all of these surveys. Which is kind of what we're all worried about, right? That someone else is going to come along and do a better job at our job than we are. Like some young whippersnapper pastor is going to come along and he's going to be able to preach better than I can. He's going to be, have a better knowledge of Scripture than I do. And he's going to be funny and people will actually laugh at his jokes. So you start to think that, I'm going to be out of a job soon. And don't we all judge someone, don't we all judge the job someone is doing from what we can observe and then assume, I could do do that job better than they can. I know I've done that. I did that back when I was a pastor, when I was a worship pastor, I used to do that to my senior pastor. I could could do that job. I I could do better than they're doing at their job. And I've actually experienced that as a pastor where people think they can do my job better than I can. And there's probably a lot of people that can do this job a lot better than I can. 
But have you talked to one person lately who hasn't thought, who doesn't think that they could be a better president than any of the presidents we've had in the last 40 years? Right? If someone were to give us a customer satisfaction survey on the current administration, whenever that administration happened, even if they're not our candidate of choosing, we'd probably still fill out the survey thinking, if I was president, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done it differently. One out of ten. In fact, most of the presidents had moments where their approval rating was down in the 20s or 30s. Several of them were able to finish in the 50s or 60s, but others finished their presidency with their approval rating in the 30s, which means that all of the people that didn't vote for them and a whole lot of the people who did vote for them thought they weren't doing a good job. They thought they could do the president's job better than they were doing it. So we're insecure about our jobs. We're insecure about how, how people view a, the job that we're doing. And at the same time, we think we could do other people's jobs better than they can. And at the same, thing we've done, same time, we've done the same thing to God. For being honest with ourselves, aren't there times when we look at what's happening in the world around us and we say, well, if I were God, I would fill in the blank. If I were God, I would never let, I never would have let that thing happen in the, to begin with. It just, it just wouldn't have happened. I, I never would. I would have saw it coming, and I just would have said, no, that's not going to happen. Or if I were God, I, I'd put an end to all the, all the wars and all the heartache. If I were God, I'd make everyone in the world rich. For being honest, I think we all kind of jump into those positions where we're looking at God or we're looking at leaders, and we're confident in our ability to do better than they are doing we're so confident in our self-righteousness and our own wisdom, which is the ability to determine what is good and what is evil, that we actually believe we'd do a better job than God himself. We say, how is it possible for God to make a good decision about this or that when he's not even here? Like, he's not even around. Where is he? How could God make a good decision with everything that's going on? But I know what's going on. I can, I can see everything that's happening in the world around me. And I know I could fix things if I was given the chance. Well, all throughout their history, Israel was constantly abandoning God's higher ways for the ways of surrounding nations. God told them that he was going to wipe out those nations who were occupying the promised land for their abhorrent idol worship, sacrificing kids to idols and the such. He was going to use Israel coming into, into the promised land, into the Canaan land, and he was going to use Israel to bring his judgment on them for their evil. He made it clear that he, he wanted to completely eradicate everyone living in the land and he knew that if he didn't, Israel would be tempted to worship their gods. So that was the command that was given to them when they were about to enter the land. Go in and you have to put everyone to death. But they failed to do so. They failed to 
put to death the people who lived in the land and instead ended up worshiping the Baals, multiple Baal gods, Ashtoreth, Molech, Kamosh, and setting up Asherah poles to worship instead of coming to God's temple. There's a cycle in the book of Judges that it goes through. It says where you know, people started off worshiping God, but then after, they, after they'd worshiped God for a couple generations, they'd start to drift, and eventually they are doing what was right in their own eyes. Judges 21, verse 25. And that phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, repeats almost on a loop in a rhythm throughout the book of Judges. Over and over again, you read that phrase. Then as they drifted into this position where they're doing what's right in their own eyes, the Israelites would find themselves suffering under a harsh ruler, a harsh dictator who was taking advantage of them. So Israel would cry out to God, repent of their wickedness, and God would give them, bring in a righteous judge, and the people would worship Yahweh for a generation or two. But then they would drift back into doing what was right in their own eyes, and they'd find themselves then being oppressed and taken advantage of until they cry out to God and God would come and rescue them. From the beginning of Israel's story, God spoke about wanting to be the God of his people. That was his desire. When he brought them up out of Egypt, the reason that he did that was that he wanted to dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God, Exodus 29, verse 45. In fact, the covenant that he made with them was supposed to be a perpetual reminder of the fact that he wanted them to be his people so he could be their God, Leviticus 26, verse 45. By God's design, Israel was a theocracy. God was their ruler. God was their king, and the people were supposed to serve and worship God, and they would be an example to all other nations around them. But by the time we finish Israel's journey through those cycles, through the book of Judges, which was about 400 years into their stay into the promised land, They've forgotten all that God has done and how many times he's rescued them from Pharaoh and from other oppressive leaders. And God has appointed Samuel as a prophet to speak to the people. And the people come to Samuel and they say to Samuel, appoint over us a king to lead us just like all the other nations have. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. They come to Samuel and say, hey, look, all the other nations have a king, so give us a king too. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Well, at first, Samuel refuses to do that. He refuses to give the people what they want because he knows that God is supposed to be their king. But then eventually God says, do everything the people request of you. For it is not you that they have rejected, but it is me that they have rejected as their king. Just as they have done from the day that I brought them up from Egypt until this very day, they've rejected me and have served other gods. This is what they're doing also to you. 
Well, the same cycle continues with the kings as well. Some kings follow God and lead the people of the land to follow God and worship God as God laid out in the covenant. Other kings come in and they lead the people to worship idols and build Asherah poles. Israel constantly goes from worshiping God to rejecting God, back to worshiping God, back to rejecting God. And just the moment that they would start to reap the fruit of their rebellion, they start to blame God for their state. Towards the end, we read from Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I have shown you love, but you ask, how have you shown love to us? Israel's like that X to God saying, why don't you love me? But he's reminding them that he's the one who hasn't been loved. He's always loved them. He's always been right there waiting for them to return to him. He's the one that has always loved them faithfully. Some might argue that God demanding his people to worship him would be, it just kind of makes God look insecure, right? Why is God threatened by all these other gods? Why does God, why does God really care? Like, I mean, if, if, he's, if he's God, then why does he need the worship of people to come and worship him? But it's not insecurity if you are the one true God. And you know that all the other gods that people are worshiping are at best tongues of wood and at worst evil spirits living in opposition to God himself. So God wants us to worship him alone, not because he's threatened by the other gods, but because he knows what's best for us. For thousands of years, we've tried to elevate ourselves to the position of judge. We've been trying to kick God off of the throne so that we can sit there and then execute our judgment on the world around us. We want the ability to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, and then we want the authority to force that right and wrong on the rest of the world around us. So they have to live under our rule and reign. We don't want a God that we can't see telling us how we should and shouldn't live. That's my job, and I can do it better than God. And that actually takes us all the way back to the garden. So much of what we're talking about in this series comes from the garden. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Isn't that interesting? Here you've got all these animals that God created, right? He created the birds. He created the animals that were out on the ground. He created the fish in the sea. created everything that slithers on the ground. Every animal creature that existed, God created. 
He could have just named it and told Adam what the names were. Like, this is a cow, Adam. That's what I want you to call it. It's a cow. This is a giraffe. Call it a giraffe. But he created us to live and work in partnership with him on the earth as his representatives. So he brought the animals to Adam so that Adam could exercise his creative design judgment over that which God was doing, for, doing with him. It was a partnership. God created mankind with the intent of us being his representatives on earth. And he gave us the authority then to define creation. God created it, but he lets us name it. He lets us bring some definitive ability to it. Now, there was one thing that God named, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Those two trees in the middle of the garden, God gave the names to that and told Adam what to do and not do with them. But when Adam and Eve ate from those trees, their very nature got corrupted. And now this ability that they had as people made in the image of God to define everything around them became impaired by the corruption they had experienced. So we as a human race didn't trust God enough to let him remain the sole judge. We decided we wanted the ability for ourselves to judge what is right and wrong. Genesis chapter 2 ends with this, with this uh, verse. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. When did they first feel shame? But after they ate the fruit. Good job. After they disobeyed God, they realized that they were naked, and then they felt shame. Adam says, I was ashamed because I was naked, so I hid. Shame was their response to disobeying God. But after drawing out a confession from Adam and Eve, through which God questioned them, God dealt with their shame. How did God deal with their shame? Anyone remember? Well, he sent them out of the garden that's coming. But they were ashamed because they were naked. So how did God deal with their shame? Yeah, I made clothes for them so they wouldn't be naked anymore. So God asked these questions to get them to say, confess to him what, he, what, what they had done and how they had violated his commands. And then he dealt with their shame. He, he made a covering for them. And then... As Sidney was saying, God showed Adam and Eve kindness by kicking them out of the garden. And it doesn't feel kind because they get kicked out of God's paradise. We interpret that as God keeping us from something. Like, why can't we have God's paradise? 
But it's a kindness because God was actually keeping Adam and Eve from eating from the fruit of the tree of life and then living forever in a cursed state, living for eternity in a state where they've been cursed by their own rebellion. So that was a kindness to actually kick them out of the garden so they didn't eat the fruit of the tree of life. God didn't use shame to get obedience from Adam and Eve. God noticed they were ashamed because of their disobedience and then questioned them to draw out the confession. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God does not use shame to get us to obey. But what does God use to get us to repent? What does God use to lead us to repentance? What was that? Holy Spirit? The law? Kindness, yeah. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at the first four verses of Romans chapter 2. If you want to open up to those verses and keep them in front of you, those are key verses for this, this sermon. God uses kindness to lead us to repentance, not judgment, not shame, not condemnation, kindness. In Romans, Paul gives us the clarity for how this works. In chapter 1, Paul has just explained how we as people, all humanity, refused to worship God. Even though we had been given every reason to believe in God, believe that he existed, see that he existed, and worship him in response to his existence. But we continue to rebel against God. How does God respond when people continue to rebel? Well, he doesn't respond by forcing them to obey. God doesn't respond to us as humans by, by shaming us and judging us and condemning us to try to get us to, to do what he wants. Instead, he gives us what we want. Romans 1.24 says, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts. God just gave the people what they wanted. God didn't make people depraved. Our depravity is what we wanted, and God just gave us what we wanted. Well, after making this big explanation of the depravity of the human race, what do you think the theme is that Paul tackles next? If you're there, you already know this. It's judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, 
because you, pass judge, you who pass judgment do the same things. At whatever point you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment, so here's a contrast, God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because I am susceptible to misinformation, I will rise above the temptation to judge and condemn those who think differently than me. As someone made in the image of God to be his representation on earth, endowed with the authority of God to define creation, I will not use my image-shaping authority for my own purposes. God doesn't force submission or shame on us to get us to respond the way he wants us to respond. But we do. We do that all the time. We might begin with shame. Shame is an easy one to go to because shame can be effective. Shame has a certain level of efficiency when it comes to getting people to do what we want. So, so sometimes resort to shame to get the desired result and behavior. For example, the practice of shunning someone in the Amish community. Are you guys familiar with the shunning? For, does anyone, when, the, when I say shun, the first image that comes to mind is Dwight from the office when he's shunning Andy? Shun. Unshun. Reshun. Unshun. Reshun. What does he say? It's like slapping them with silence. Shunning is like slapping somebody with silence. Well, the Amish community shuns people because it's effective. There's a certain efficiency to shunning, and psychology today says that the fear of rejection, severe enough to lead to isolation, is a powerful agent of behavioral control. The fear of rejection severe enough to lead to isolation is a powerful agent of behavioral control. Social connectedness is essential to psychological and physical well-being. So shunning threatens to take those things away and they will start to feel isolated. So that's one of the reasons why shunning is effective. But this practice of shaming also carries with it a risk, a high risk, because shame can become internalized and those who are shamed can start to embrace their shame as an identity. We feel that way sometimes when we feel ashamed of something, that we, we aren't just someone who does that thing, but we are that thing. We are that person. In cases of internal shame, the individual becomes both judged 
So they become judged by whoever's shaming them. But when they internalize it, they become also the judge of themselves, and they experience self-criticism and feelings of inadequacy. In the end, shame doesn't motivate pro-social behaviors. It fuels social withdrawal and low self-esteem. This is just my theory, but I think God probably didn't use shame on Adam and Eve or on us as humans because we already have an identity. Right? One of the dangers of shame is that we become, we, that becomes our identity that we embrace. We embrace the shame as a part of who we are, but Adam and Eve and all of us already have an identity. We're already made in God's image. We, we ought to know who we are. So he didn't want them to experience or embrace, sorry, he didn't want, to, want Adam and Eve to embrace then rebellion as an identity. He didn't want to push Adam and Eve in further into rebellion by shaming them so that they embraced it as an identity. Instead, he wanted to draw them out of that rebellion and back into a relationship with himself. In fact, if you go back and you read through the story, you do see an order in which God worked. God did not instantly judge and condemn their rebellion. He first restored their relationship. Now, it's not to say that rebellion doesn't have consequences. Their rebellion had consequences for the whole human race. Rebellion has consequences. But going back to Romans chapter 2, because God's judgment is based on truth, God's judgment is based on truth, we know that God's judgment is righteous. Right? God created the world and everything in it. God created everything around us that we see with our eyes. God has created the whole world. And not only did God create everything we see with our eyes, but God created the invisible parts of our world as well. He created the operating system under which society was supposed to operate when he created this paradise. And since he was the creator of it all, when Adam and Eve violated God's rule, he, as an outside judge, was able to execute appropriate judgment for Adam and Eve that correlated with their offense. And because he's God, God is God and we're not God, God was able to honestly evaluate their actions and I think this is an important thing that we can pick up from Romans chapter 2. Because God is God, he's able to honestly evaluate Adam and Eve's actions because he was not guilty of doing the same thing. God has never rebelled. God, as we read through the Old Testament, has never broken the covenant. God never broke the promises that he made. God has been faithful to everything that he said he would do. He has followed through with it all. 
Our judgments, on the other hand, are incapable of being unbiased because we're judging people for doing the same things we have done. God could have shamed Adam and Eve to coerce people into doing what he wanted like Adam and Eve. God could have coerced the Israelites by using shame to get them to do what he wanted. But he didn't. In fact, thousands of years after Adam and Eve, when we've gone through the whole history of the Old Testament, and now Israel is getting exiled because they keep choosing to worship other gods. There are only a few people that are called the remnant who are left in Israel who worship God. So many had chosen to worship other idols, embracing the gods of the surrounding nations. Yes, God punished them. God punished their disobedience, but he didn't shame them to try to get them to obey. And my theory is he didn't want them to move deeper into rebellion, embracing that as an identity. He wanted to draw them out of that in the relationship. So shame is a form of judgment where the person doing the shaming is trying to control the identity of another person. Shame is a form of judgment where the person doing the shaming is trying to control the identity of another person using shame. But identity formation should be left to God alone. We shouldn't take it on ourselves. We should not try to shape the identities of the people around us. Our only goal is that we help people become more like Christ. But as a society, we take this on ourselves all the time. Our culture is an identity formation machine, constantly shaping us into the image that best profits those with power and control. But attempting to shape the identity of someone through shame is an attempt to take our God-given ability to define things and use them against those whose only sin is they've embraced a different form of rebellion than we ourselves have embraced. We're all rebels. Well, sometimes though shame doesn't work, so we have to take a stronger approach. We try to force people into submission. Like Bruce Almighty, we want to use our sovereignty to make people do what we want them to do, but that was the one rule that Morgan Freeman gave Bruce, right? He said, you can't mess with free will. You can't mess with people's free will. We want to force people into submission, but trying to force people into submission is actually slavery, which, by the way, is something else God never did. God never forced his people into slavery. Now, God's people kept finding themselves enslaved to harsh rulers, starting with Pharaoh and then continuing with kings of surrounding nations while they were living in the promised land. But every time the people of God got tired of being enslaved, they would cry out to God, and their cries would reach the ears of God, and he would act and intervene and set them free. 
and they would stay free. God would continue to fight for the people of Israel until they started to choose to worship other gods, at which point, which point God would then turn them over to their desires. He would let them have what they wanted. He would then let them suffer the consequences of chasing after those desires. And every time they willfully came out from under God's rule and reign, they found themselves enslaved by authoritarian dictator kings all around them. And these kings not only forced them to do labor, but they forced them to worship their gods. Think Daniel. And the Israelites would go along with this worship of other gods, even to the point of turning on their own people who were choosing to worship Yahweh and turning those people into the authorities. But God never did that. God never enslaved his people. God never forced people. God doesn't to this day force us to worship him. Why? I mean, from where we're sitting, if we were making a judgment as God, we'd kind of look around the world and say, it'd be a whole lot easier if God would just force us to do what he wants and we didn't have the option to choose something else. Well, forced submission can sometimes gain compliance, but it never gains willful obedience of the heart. God doesn't want our compliance. He wants us to want Him and to love Him of our own free will. God wanted His people to want Him of their own volition. And He would warn them of the consequences of their decision to go a different way, bringing up, raising up people or a, a position called the prophet, and Israel would want to go their own direction, and God would raise up a prophet to come in and tell the people that what they were about to do was going to end in, in bad things, and God would try to warn them to keep them from going down this road. God would do everything He could to intervene except for force them to obey because they still had autonomy over their lives and the kingdoms they created, as do we to this day. Well, what is judgment anyway? Let's talk about that really quickly. This one, this chapter has been the hardest for me to figure out because trying to boil down judgment into one teaching is like nearly impossible because there's so much about it in Scripture. Webster's Dictionary, Merriam-Webster, says judgment is an opinion or decision based on careful thought. That's what they say, but that's not, that's not what we mean by judgment. <laughs> that, is one, that is a form of you know, make, having good judgment would be to make a decision based on careful thought. Most of our thoughts we use to judge don't tend to be passed on, be passed through careful thought. They're usually the regurgitation of someone else's thinking. But option two is the act or process of forming an opinion 
or making a decision after careful thought. If you strike out the careful thought portion, I think we're getting closer to what judgment actually looks like in the world today. The act or process of forming an opinion or making a decision. That's, that's how we're defining, that's how judgment is working. Now, I'm not saying it's how it should be defined. I'm just saying it's how judgment is working in culture. That's the box of judgment in culture today. So we might say a phrase like, use your best judgment. And when we say that, what we mean is to think about it, think carefully about it, make the best decision you can make. Think carefully about something and make a good decision. But that's not really the judgment we see going on in the world today. We see a different kind of judgment. Now, in Scripture, there are four categories of judgment. There might be more than this, but there are at least four categories of judgment in Scripture. There's the judgment of God, the judgment of judges, the judgment within the church, and then judgment of those outside the church. Those are at least the four categories I want to break down. We're not going to get through all four of them here. We're going to run out of time. The judgment of God, the judgment of judges, judgment within the church, and judgment of those outside the church. Let's start with the judgment of God. Whole sermons, books, debates have been had on the idea of the judgment of God. We can't do the judgment of God justice in this section. But we're still going to try. Psalm chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. The Lord reigns forever. He has established His throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. Psalm 96, verse 13. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. This is the judgment of God. It is faithful. It is based on His character. Deuteronomy 32, God is talking about what He'll do to Israel if they disobey His commands when they're about to enter into the promised land, and conversely, what He will do to them if they break the covenant. Verse 35 of chapter 32, God says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. And then there's the final judgment, the one that we're probably most familiar with in Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's the one we're probably most familiar with 
in Christianity to this day. You might categorize this judgment as condemnation. But John, when he's talking about Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, and 18, John says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So whoever believes is not condemned, whoever does not believe is already condemned. So this act of condemnation is reserved for God alone. It's not something we get to do. Only God, who is the only truly righteous judge in all of creation, He's the only judge that is actually set apart, right? Righteous means being set apart. He's the only judge that's set apart in all creation. Only God has the authority and the ability to be an unbiased judge. And escape from that judgment hangs on one criteria alone. Not whatever criteria we would put on it, but there's only one criteria that gets us out of this judgment of God that condemns us for all eternity, and that's belief in Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 14, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. So, unless we're doing our part to help people cross over from death to life, our job when it comes to this form of judgment is stay away from it. Just let God be that judge. There is one more category, and this will be the last one for tonight. We'll finish the rest later this week. The judgment of judges. Biblically, it'd be more accurate to say the judgment of God through judges. For instance, Moses in Exodus chapter 18, it says, The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. So Moses was doing the judging. But a lot of his judgment took place at the entrance to the tent of meeting, which is also where Moses came before the Lord. We see that in Numbers chapter 27, verse 5. Moses brought their case before the Lord. Moses was a judge who had access to God. He could receive judgment from God on issues related to the community of Israel. So Moses was, was the first judge over Israel, but then his father-in-law saw that he was spending all day, every day, being this judge, and so his father-in-law said, hey, you need to get some people to help carry the load. Exodus chapter 18, Moses chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. So here we see the creation of people whose job it was to judge. 
Well, later God would establish the priests from, from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to be judges for Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we see a, a hypothetical scenario set forth. If someone finds a dead person but no one knows who the killer was, the Levitical priests shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. So after the judges in the early part with Moses and then the judges in the book of Judges, then God established priests to be judges, and you're supposed to bring the disputes to the priests who have, God's, God, they have access to God and they have the understanding of God's law so that they can make a judgment in a situation. The judges were established by God. And whether we like it or not, the judges of our society are also established by God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So as Michael Scott asked, who should be the judges and juries of our society? Angela Martin responds, judges and juries. The people God has put in the positions of judging should be the ones who judge. Now, later this week, we're going to cover judgment within the church judgment of those outside the church, and then we're going to get into uh, kind of wrapping this up and making this practical. Okay, what do we do? What do we do then when it comes to the topic of judgment? How do we, how do we not be judges and yet at the same time try to live by God's truth? So we'll be covering all of the rest of that information on Tuesday evening. I encourage you to check that out or join me with that. But for now, let's pray. It's a difficult topic. It's hard, Father, for us to think about something that maybe is so big and overarching as judgment. But Father, I just pray that you help us to grab onto a couple key concepts that it's your job to judge, that you are the judge, you're the ruler, you're the only unbiased judge. I pray, Father, if we have fallen prey to the temptation to heap judgment on people who think differently than we do, if we've judged and condemned people simply because they, have, they hold a different point of view than, than ourselves, just because their form of rebellion is different than our form of rebellion, I ask, Father, that you would help us to acknowledge that, to repent of that, and to seek forgiveness for those situations if possible. But I pray, Father, just like your main instrument of repentance is kindness, that you would also help us to be incredibly kind people, that you would fill us with your power 
to lead people to repentance through kindness, that we wouldn't fall into the trap of judging people and condemning people and trying to force people and argue people into obedience to our concepts and our ideas, but that we would find ourselves empowered by the Spirit to be eternally kind, to, to ask the right questions, to ask questions, to get to the heart of what people are wrestling with and, and thinking about and dealing with when it comes to these issues. And that you'd give us the questions to ask that help draw them out of whatever rebellion they may be living in and draw them into relationship with you where things are being made right again. If we've been judgmental, I pray, Father, help us to stop being judgmental. I ask that you give us the courage to be able to make that change in our lives. I ask, Father, that you help us to repair some of the damage that, is, that has been done by judgmental Christianity, which has been taking place for a long time. And help us, Father, to lead people out of that pain and shame and whatever, whatever frustration they're feeling because of the mistakes we've made in trying to, to, to judge people we don't have the business judging and that they would find themselves drawn into the kindness of Christians, the kindness of the church. And I pray, Father, that in all of that, they would see you in us, they would see your love shining through us, and that your kindness, working through our lives, would lead them to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.